0: The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for Wednesday, June 2nd, 2021. This is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you from Austin, Texas. Got a great show for you today. Uh, we're going to do what is hopefully the last, the last segment purely about Coronavirus. But those of you who have listened to this show for a long time, you know that we we used to, back in, in about a year ago, open every version of this show with a hyperbole-free cov- coronavirus update. Largely because I was so annoyed with how coronavirus was being covered. I felt that the hysteria was getting in the way of for real, for real information that people needed to know. Boring things like, where is the disease? Where are closures happening? What are the closures? Stuff like that. I kind of wanted it to be the snow report for this, you know, uh, turns out world-changing virus. And I didn't feel particularly comfortable doing it because... I don't I mean i i I felt good parroting the news. I would find the news and then I would repeat it. but i I didn't feel like I was somebody that even now has a tremendous perspective on coronavirus. Now, I think I have a perspective of how it affects politics, and unfortunately, for me, coronavirus affected politics so much that I wasn't able to cover an election that I had worked four years to set myself up to cover. But now we're in a different perspective and I'm again a little annoyed by the coverage. And so hopefully this will be the last coronavirus segment that I will do on this podcast that has no relationship to an election or voters or a party or a president. We will also discuss... uh Whether or not Donald Trump should be a main focus for Democrats going into 2022 with the January 6th commission, a bipartisan January 6th commission, all but dead. That means that the next step forward would be for Nancy Pelosi to convene investigations in the House. But is that the best idea for Democrats? As they look to defend their very slim majority. Some representatives think not. And we will be joined by our old friend Andrew Heaton. He is going to explain to us uh, why the concept of the fiscal hawk. There was this archetype that used to exist when I was a kid. Why it's gone. If it will ever come back. and. Stay tuned to the end, because we we brand ourselves the rehabilitation agency and come up, come up with a way that you can sell these same ideas in a totally different way. I think it's a pretty funny conversation all that.
1: But
0: So it's been a while since we've kind of gone through just baseline coronavirus numbers. And so I did. And I found some things that I thought were interesting. Just just things to know. Here's the first thing that I found. Case numbers. So the amount of coronavirus cases throughout the beginning of the pandemic, were very weighted toward the Northeast. It was New York City and the surrounding environs. It's really the beginning of, of me hammering Governor Cuomo. Before it became the cool thing to do, I hammered Governor Cuomo, largely because he couldn't get on the same page with his mayor, Bill de Blasio, and... You know things had gotten bad, and so the fact that New York City was the epicenter, and then case counts rose throughout New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, that was something that that I I thought deserved note. Well, I will note for you now as I look up all of these, uh, all of these numbers here on June first. Case counts have correlated almost exactly with population, state by state. Meaning, the states with the most people have the biggest case numbers. Now, this is a little interesting. If you're not aware, the most populous states in America are, in this order, California, Texas, Florida, and New York. So close your eyes and... Picture that on a map. You have four states that are as big as we grow them here in in, in America that don't, don't touch each other, that are as spread out as states that big can be. And if we're going to talk a little bit of politics here, you've got two blue states and two red states. So California's got the most cases. New York's got the fourth, and in the middle, Texas and Florida, exactly correlated with their population. In case you were wondering, the top ten is is almost exactly the same. Indeed, uh, uh, California, Texas, Florida, New York, Illinois, and Pennsylvania are the the top six states by population, also the top six six states in terms of coronavirus cases. Georgia and Ohio flip-flop. Uh, uh, Georgia's got slightly more coronavirus cases than Ohio, but that would be seven and eight on population. And then there's a little bit of a shuffle between New Jersey, North Carolina, and Michigan. New Jersey is ahead of them despite the fact that they've got the least population. But again, that comes with what these case counts looked like a couple months ago. Here's something else that I noticed. The Northeast and the Deep South have had the highest death per one million population. So statistics, uh, refresher. You can't say, oh, my God, uh, California's got nearly four million deaths and Michigan's got less than a million. So California's done horrible because California's got a lot more people than Michigan does. So the way that you can accurately sort of understand a little bit of apples to apples is by judging how many deaths per one million people. And this was a very interesting trend. So if we're looking at the top 11, six out of those top 11 of deaths per 1 million population are in that northeast Acela corridor. New Jersey's got the highest, then New York, then Massachusetts, then Rhode Island. All over 2,000 People per 1 million that died. Number 7 is Connecticut. Number 11 is Pennsylvania. Now, those are granted, some of them are, are smaller states, so you're going to have an overrepresentation there. But as it stands now, if indeed we are on the backside of this, then these will likely look like some of the final numbers. Here's what else was fascinating Number 5, Mississippi number nine, Louisiana, and number 10, Alabama. So, aside from Arizona and South Dakota, all of that top 11 has come from either a cluster in the Northeast or a cluster in the Deep South. Again, we we have... Some real questions here uh, about exactly where the correlative properties are between the northeast and the deep south, but in this case, they are the dominant, uh, the dominant states in that top eleven. Now let's get to good news. The United States of America recorded our lowest daily death toll on Memorial Day. Since the very beginning of the pandemic. That is Monday, June 1st, 115 people were reported as having died of COVID-19. Now, a few qualifiers here. It was on Memorial Day, and in general, Mondays are when death reports tend to be smaller because it's people are playing catch up over the weekend. That being said, 115 people dying is a staggeringly low daily death number when you've looked at this stuff every day. I remember a time not so long ago when I, because I've been morbidly looking at this stuff since the very beginning, when 115 deaths could be the half-reported number from Florida, New York, California, or Texas over the last few months. Based on Worldometers, 115 deaths is the lowest daily death toll figure in the United States since March 21st, 2020, when we recorded 65 deaths. And by the way, Worldometers only began reporting its daily death toll on March 18th. So we're talking about the very beginning. Of the pandemic. That's where we are right now with our death toll. That is great news. Because as I've said before, coronavirus without the deaths is not what we live through. It's not the shut the economy down, everybody uh, uh, changes the way that they live their lives kind of thing. Here's some more good news daily new cases dropped below 10,000 cases a day for the first time since March 22nd. That was on Memorial Day. Again, it's probably a recording fluke, but still the fact that we're in striking distance for a routine reporting lag to put us past some really, really rad milestones is an achievement in and of itself. So we're going to take the W on this one. Why is this happening? Quite frankly, folks, there's only one thing to credit. The vaccine, period, end of story. As of right now, 46% of Americans have been fully vaccinated. Over 50% have had at least one dose, putting us on track for President Biden's goal of 70% of Americans having at least one dose by July 4th. I want to make this clear because I want this to be the biggest thing you remember from this segment. Because to me, it's something that I have not heard enough and I feel deserves to be said very plainly. We, and by we, I mean Americans, are very lucky we have the access to this vaccine that we have. We are lucky the federal government pre-bought doses. We are lucky they have been competently distributed we should and i know many are very 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 grateful because this kind of access to the vaccines which are without question driving these numbers down to the level for which we have just be- we hadn't seen since we just began all this is not the same around the world Here are some countries without the same access to vaccines as the United States of America. Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand are all under 10% vaccinated. Indeed, Japan is just coming down from a May spike while trying to make sure that their Olympic Games happen one year late. And Australia implemented lockdown restrictions in their second most populous state, Victoria, last week. I'm sure leaving all Melbourne residents wondering why they continue to get the Shadow Man's shadow and not Octos' golden light. By the way, you can add India and Russia to the list of sub 10% vaccinated countries. India's massive outbreak that we covered last month has begun to slow, although they are still registering six figure daily infection rates and daily death tolls in the thousands. We see some good news though. Western Europe and Canada have begun to catch up. Remember, they were lagging. France, Spain, Portugal, and Italy are beginning to round into 30% vaccinated territory. That's what we like to call here in America, Mississippi. Germany has already passed that, and as has Canada. Here's some good news. The country that the United States can look the most to, as an example, is the United Kingdom, who approved their vaccines faster and prioritized one-dose administration. That's what Canada's done to get their vaccination rates up as high as they have been, as fast as they've done it. So where is that daily death toll for the UK? Well, they've been registering sub-100 daily death tolls since March. And some days no one dies at all. I want to say this again because it could not be more important for you to listen to and hear. If you are an American, you should be very grateful and thankful for our current coronavirus state. If in any way you feel like your life is getting back to normal, understand that this is unique to us. Around the world, this is still a very persistent problem. So, if you are a listener to this show that distrusts the messages that you get from mainstream media, and I understand that, I feed into that sometimes because I don't always trust the things I get from mainstream media. If you are somebody who reflexively recoils when the masses all run in the same direction. And if those two elements of your personality have led to a hesitancy to get the vaccine. Not that you're against it, maybe. I just haven't gotten around to it. I just don't leave my house all that much. Or you're out and out skeptical of it. Well, I would encourage you to dig into these numbers yourself. I am not a scientist. I am not an epidemiologist. I'm just a curious dude who's been specifically watching these numbers for a year and a half. I'm very open to somebody emailing me a counterfactual on these. But the black and white of what I see when I look at these numbers is crystal clear. Vaccines are beating back this virus. The places that have shots in arms are doing better than those without And with that being said, I desperately hope that this is the last segment that I have to do like this because I'm... still annoyed that this virus happened i'm still annoyed that beyond all the death and despair and culture rending that we had a heightening in an already polarized election that we fought about other things so much that 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 it's left scars on our friendships on our families our media becoming so toxic to those that 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 that, that have have a different point of view. I hope we never have to do it. But beyond all that, I hope that coronavirus is actually done because I want to do my job again. I'm still annoyed. I'm still annoyed that I couldn't go cover that election for you guys. It's all I wanted to do in 2020. So much so that we are getting back on the road. And I'll tell you where during the ad break, but this hopefully concludes our hyperbole-free coronavirus updates. So let me ask a very simple question. Do Democrats want Trump on the ballot in 2022? All the Democrats, I'm talking to you. The Democrats listening, Democratic voters, Democrats who are uh, D- Democratic voters who are listening to me right now, do you want Trump on the ballot in 2022? Now, there's some, uh, you know, back and forth on this. On one hand, if Donald Trump is on the ballot, then everybody cares. Democrats are very excited to vote when Donald Trump is somebody that they can hurt directly with their vote. They get very motivated. They like to spend a lot of money, too. You get a lot of very well-funded campaigns when Donald Trump is on the ballot. And you've got a way to do it. That January 6th commission, now that the bipartisan version of it is dead, the investigation would likely now happen in the House with a partisan select committee put together by Nancy Pelosi. Considering the pressure that was put on to make the bipartisan version happen, there will likely be similar pressure for Pelosi to go, I mean, maybe even full Benghazi. Hearing after hearing after hearing after hearing, all packed with fiery fist-pounding monologues designed to electrify prime-time cable news shows. Republicans, of course, contend that that was the plan all along, whether it was a bipartisan commission or Pelosi did it by herself. The Dems would stretch Trump into 2022 so they can use it to motivate their base, which, depending on what vector you look at, there is some evidence to say that now that the big bad is gone, Democrats have kind of tuned out of politics a little bit. but do you want Trump on the ballot? Because let's remember that while Joe Biden beat Donald Trump in 2020, the Democrats did not have a good result when it came to Congress. Indeed, despite the fact that they eventually got the Senate, they were supposed to get it on election night. and. This was not supposed to be a 50 50 Senate. This was supposed to be a Senate that the Democrats absolutely controlled. Meanwhile, they were supposed to expand their majority in the House. Instead, it contracted. So, do you want Trump on the ballot? Do you want 2022 to be about democracy or death? According to one Florida Congresswoman, On the Democratic side, she hopes not. Quote, Trump is a Republican problem and a Republican cancer that they need to cut out of their party. But that's their problem, says Representative Stephanie Murphy of Florida. Now, according to her school of thought, and this is fleshed out in a Politico article, the Democrats should focus on what actually won them the House in 2018. Health care. And I got to say, I think they're right. I'm not sure about how much the rest of America cares about what happened on January 6th beyond their current feelings. Like, this is not saying that what happened was good or cool or rad. The question is just, how many more questions do you have about it? Now, of course, if there's some bombshell recording of Trump calling in the code red and personally dispatching the Q shaman, you know, that might be a different story. But Republicans and Democrats have different ideas on health care. And if I were going to push an issue after a year where there was So much sickness and so much death. And I'm sure there are hundreds of families that are staring down medical debt that they might not know how to pay for. Or people that might be very excited that they signed up for Obamacare and they had a a, a, they had health insurance during a time when your health was at the forefront of everybody's mind. I think that might not be the worst idea on the planet. I think more people might be able to relate to it. But that's just my guess. Like, I I, I don't know. I, I really don't know what the actual drive about the January 6th commission is, the actual curiosity and passion beyond the people that are very dialed into politics. I don't know how much of a retail issue. January 6th is. Politics, politics. On our Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show, we let you know that there is only one story that will define this week in politics. It's not the January 6th commission. It's not even the the ongoing infrastructure negotiations, which we're going to cover on Friday. No, it's Friday's jobs report. What the results and, and, and fallout of that report is going to be, you'll be able to hear first on next week's. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show, which you can get along with a bonus podcast on Thursday if you go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com and sign up at the $3 level. Not only do you get the first podcast you should listen to each and every week, because that Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show goes live at midnight on Monday, so you can make sure that you listen to it ASAP. Give yourself the Rosetta Stone of how to understand the rest of the week. But also it's because you support this enterprise. And support for this enterprise means that I go to be your eyes and your ears on the biggest political stories in America. And right now, This month, there is no bigger political story in America with an actual election attached to it than New York City, the mayoral election, specifically the Democratic primary, which is essentially the mayoral election in New York. I'm going to be there, baby. Oh, yeah. I will be, uh, I'll be, I'll be there to get all the information. I'll be there to go to the, uh, go to the rallies. Will Andrew Yang do it? Has his star fallen too far? Are any of these polls that are being conducted even worth a lick of spit? It will all be revealed. When I head to New York City for that election later this month, I'll be there June 22nd. And you want to know what? I'm vaxxed. May or may not have a little uh, little meetup as well. I'll give you guys all the details on that as we get closer. But this is what you fund. This is what you get for your money. You get me heading out there and being your personal correspondent. If you want to support that, if you want to get the bonus content that is also live from New York, you go to one place, takepoliticsseriously.com. As I record this podcast, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, a Senate Republican, is meeting with Joe Biden on a possible infrastructure deal. As of now, despite the fact that the two sides can't quite agree on the definition of what infrastructure is or how to pay for it strategically, like where the money is going to come from, the Republicans are willing to vote for a package to spend nearly $1 trillion, while the Biden administration is asking for $1.7 trillion. But that's just for phase one of Biden's plan, the second of which would probably cost even more. The whole conversation got me thinking. Growing up, there used to be a political archetype, specifically in Congress, which sometimes was even bipartisan. The cranky fiscal hawk. The person who simply wouldn't vote for a government program that didn't immediately pay for itself. They'd give speeches about how inflation was a death sentence for your grandchildren. With that voice seeming a bit absent these days, I wanted to discuss why. And to do that, we welcome back one of our oldest friends here on this program, Andrew Heaton of the Political Orphanage. Welcome back to the show, Andrew.
1: Thank you. A pleasure to be back. And I if 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 I am not fiscally prudent, I am at least cranky, so I'll fill that that role for you <laughs> while I'm on today.
0: I mean, and maybe part of this is also because I've been watching a lot of old political ads because I've been doing this this political ad retrospective and It's amazing how much even on the like Democrats used to run on the idea that inflation was a death sentence for your children's (laughs) children. Right. And and this was like Obama. This was, this was Clinton. This was not forever ago. This wasn't, you know, back, back when the Democrats were white supremacists, like this was, (laughs) this was, this was recently. Uh, And, and now I, I guess maybe the, 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 the financial reins kind of got looser first on the democratic side, but it's not like Reagan was exactly a, 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 a budget follower. He was a budget expander. He got dinged for that by, by his opponents. And, and now with Trump, it seems like that idea is out of vogue. Uh, do you agree with my premise that that? Uh, oh yes. I, I, I don't
1: think there's anyone left who is concerned about spending at all. I, I think that that's gone. When I, when I was a kid, uh, there, Republicans at least pretended to care. About the deficit. That was that was at least something that was was in their their vein. Uh, I, I think that that is largely gone. But I I actually think that the archetype itself has changed um, from what used to constitute a fiscal conservative before you and I were kids to what constituted a fiscal conservative when we were kids. So if you yeah. go back to let, let's say pre Reagan, if we go back to uh, to Gerald Ford. The idea of fiscal conservatism at that time, or let's call it fiscal prudence because that's a little bit less partisan, was that if a government program is worth paying for, it's worth taxing to get the revenue on it. And that was kind of yeah. the Gerald Ford mindset was it's not that spending is all evil – uh, it's that when you do it, you need to pay for it. You you run on a deficit if there's a war or there's a depression, but otherwise you want to have balanced books. And that was considered the prudent thing to do that wouldn't lead to inflation, that that allowed America to have great credit, et cetera, and so forth. Um, that has gone and has been gone for a very long time. Uh, that, that has uh, been replaced by um, the the new conservative model, which is all taxes are bad always, and and that uh, like I, I know Grover Norquist, and he's kind of led the spear on that, and and made it to where fiscal conservatism is now equate with never raising taxes under any circumstance, and so that shift had already happened. But for a while, there was this kind of balance between Democrats who viewed spending as an investment and uh, conservatives who wanted to rein in spending by reining in. Uh, tax revenue, and and those are all gone now. the the uh, the the tax revenue part remains in the conservative uh, side. They don't want to raise taxes, but. Spending's fine, and and it it just really it just varies on what you uh, varies on what you want to splurge on at any given time. Uh, tanks are completely invisible to Republicans; they can't see them. They don't believe yeah. it applies to math. If if there's anything involving the defense budget, go for it. But even outside of that, I, I don't think the defense budget was that much larger under Trump. It did increase, but not by a crazy amount. But nonetheless, the deficit did and the debt did. He was not a. I mean, even pre COVID, he was not a fiscally restrained guy. Uh, ditto no. Obama. No,
0: no, no. Yeah. And now we got we
1: got Joe Biden who's throwing money at everything.
0: Yeah, mostly because I believe that's the only way that Joe Biden understands how to affect a problem. And I don't necessarily Mm -hmm. even mean that is as any kind of slight, but just more that when you spend all your time in the Senate and for as a senator, the way that you can say you helped or solved a problem was Mm. I led a bill or I voted for a bill that gave money to a thing Like the, the Senate doesn't vote to say, hey, uh, can we fire these people in these certain agencies so we can maybe can we can combine them and make them less redundant and that way we'll save money. They don't do that. They say, here's a gigantic pile of cash. And if it's a really big problem, we're going to make it a really big pile.
1: I, I think that that would definitely be something endemic to members of the Senate of your no, no one's getting a report card of uh, this guy uh, got over 15 amendments in this year. And he got 43 motions. What a great senator he is. Nobody cares about that, right? <laughs> but if you're going, this guy, he brought home, you know, $82 billion. And every single road in West Virginia is now, you know, three feet deep and made out of premium concrete. And we've got extra airports and all that stuff. I mean, like, pork barrel is oftentimes the way that you you see if a, a senator oh, is effective yeah. or not.
0: No, I, I've told this story before. But back when I was a, a wet-behind-the-ears college student working at the college newspaper, uh, the representative uh, at the time for the central New York region, uh, I believe his last name is Walsh, came in and and did, to his credit, came in and, and sat for an endorsement meeting with the, 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 the college newspaper. And he just kind of laid out in very stark terms, hey, guys, you could vote me out, but here are all the committees that I'm on, here are all the places that I allocate money for the state. Here are all the places that have gotten those uh, that that money that has come from the federal government. It wouldn't come into this place because the person who took my place on those committees would immediately stop all that money coming into this city and would make it come into his city. So mm-hmm. vote for me. and and like <laughs> that was that was a stark I mean vote credit for me him.
1: cash sign reality.
0: I, I mean, look. Uh, credit him a for coming in and doing the meeting, but also, like, that's really what it is. Like, like that—that that is the, the 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 long and the short of it.
1: And and I'll add, I think that that is ultimately the the major dysfunction of Congress is not there's this this mythological idea that congressmen have been bought off by special interests and that uh, yeah. you know you know the, the the guy from Oklahoma he's been bought off by by big wheat. And the the guy from from the suburbs of Boston, that guy's been bought off by unions. And you you meet these people, that guy that's quote unquote been bought off by unions. His dad was a Steve Door. His his wife's dad was a, a union guy that worked in a car factory. His brother works in a car factory. He believes in unions. He's always believed in unions. This is not something that was purchased from him. It's something where he believed in it and the unions came up and went, we really like it. We're going to give you money. Ditto. Like like I, I didn't vote for Ted Cruz. I'm not a big Ted Cruz fan, but he uh, like he got all this crap. He was purchased by the NRA. And I was like, when did he not believe in guns? Like when was yeah. that up in the air for Ted Cruz? What, what? In, in my opinion, what typically happens, the bigger issue for spending is not that there's corruption going on in the sense that people have been bought and sold and that kind of thing. What, what I found when I worked for Congress, congress was that members of congress are hyper parochial they and and they and it's weird because it is their job they're doing a good job your job is to bring resources to your district and to protect jobs in your district and if if your district has a cavalry base and it is glaringly apparent we don't need cavalry in the 21st century, you don't care. You're, you're, your job is to protect those people. And they really do care. And the, the, the problem really arises from the fact that you've got 463 independent members of Congress all trying to get as many resources as they possibly can to their district. And when you add that up at the federal level, yeah. it ends up not working very well.
0: So here's my question to you. Is that archetype gone forever? And can you think of a way that it comes back that doesn't involve economic hardship that defines the rest of our lives?
1: <laughs> right. Great question. Uh, the, the short answer is yes, I think that will come back. I think in any economic system where you've got limited resources invariably you're going to have somebody who's aware of the fact that there's limited resources. Like that is going to be, that is going to be a thing. And I, and I think you see strains of this in, 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 both parties, by the way, like Amy Klobuchar, who is not the warm cuddly favorite of the democratic party. One of the things I really liked about her was that she would, she would acknowledge that we had finite resources available at any given time. Whereas a lot of the other candidates that were running for president did not acknowledge this fact that, that we, we, we might actually have a limited amount of resources. I think that that is always going to come back into vogue at some point. The, the question that you allude to is, does it come back to vogue through hardship or does it come back into vogue through uh, forward-thinking stewardship? That's that's to me the, the bigger issue. Uh, I, I am concerned right now. I, I, I should say I, I am a comedian who kind of knows economics. I am not an economist, so I'm, yeah. I'm already out of my element here. But it, insofar as I know, about 20% of the currency which exists in the country was printed this last year. So unless the economy grows 20% in the next year, I don't see how you could get around inflation because the monetary supply has been inflated without the economy keeping up. So the, the value of the dollar is going to decline, right? So like, yeah. if, if that happens and it happens widespread, I think you're going to see a lot of people end up becoming more fiscally prudent in the same way that you, I, I imagine you probably had a big backlash during the Carter years when, when that hyperinflation was happening and interest on houses, which is like, what, 2% right now? Uh, uh like it's it's really low it was like 26% under carter like it was crazy right so that that's yeah. going to induce a lot of people the the bigger issue i think that needs to happen for this for this to even be possible in a way that is forward thinking is to figure out how to disconnect fiscal prudence from the whole liberal versus conservative thing because at the moment so much of political energy is going into hating the people on the other team that yeah. being associated with any qualities they allegedly have is not good for you as a politician. But it, but it, I, I got to say it's not true. It, it like the, the the data is such that um, when, when you get down below the level of the House and the Senate to regular just humans, there are lots of humans who are Democrats that are are like, okay, we we need to be a little careful about this. And there's lots of Republicans who are like, yeah, we should spend money on welfare. So it, it does go down. And I me living in big east coast cities for the last 10 years up till recently i'll say like i know quite a lot of fiscally conservative gay guys who are like they're not they're not tra- traditionally conservative they're not like agitating for for uh, you know like traditional marriage they're 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 out hitting on me at bars uh but yeah. when you when you talk to them they're concerned about you know well if if we if we tax the economy too high so on and so forth so what what i would love to do is i would love to have the term conservative and liberal only apply to social issues to where you know if if you're if you're gay but you're uh, you're in favor of low taxes and you want reduced spending okay you're a liberal that's it like you're like if, yeah. if you're in favor of legalizing marijuana you're a liberal put that on a different spectrum right and we need to come up with new terminology to, to talk about this other thing I, I suggest we call it like fiscal prudence versus I don't know fiscal expansion something like that but it needs it needs to be on a different spectrum because so long as we are Linking these unalike concepts together and treating them as if they're all lockstep, there's not much incentive for anybody to go either direction if they're in the House or the Senate. It's just to do whatever their their team is associated with and and i math is math I mean math is really the debate we should be having is is the money a good investment? And can we afford it? And there are lots of instances where it is a good investment. Education's a great example of public funding that has made America more prosperous. Uh, America, part of the reason that we're a global economic superpower is because we've invested in education and they're like, yay, yeah. Democrats, you did a great job with that. Uh, at the same time, like we we you can you can go off that cliff. There there's all sorts of well-meaning programs that are great ideas. We just can't fund them. And if you try and fund all of them, eventually bad things happen. And so that that's the debate we should be having. And I, I wish it were more rooted in pragmatism than in, you know, sort of spirit animals of Ruth Bader Ginsburg versus Ronald Reagan or stuff like that.
0: I wonder whether or not part of this uh the the erasure of that archetype is because, by and large, the economy's been pretty good since the early 90s. Like, yeah, it's had its dips. And yes, if you had money in the stock market, then there was some very, very uh, traumatic things where people's, you know, like savings and stuff were, were, were brought down by crashes. But at the end of the day, for, I think, rank and file, the majority of Americans, they were either... Working kind of the same sort of jobs throughout all of it. It's not like all the Taco Bells went away, and all all of a sudden there wasn't any kind of entry level work for a lot of people. Uh, wages might have been depressed or, or 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 flatlined for a little bit, but by and large they were kind of okay. And and I think that there is an element of stability that has sort of led to the like. SpongeBob, uh, a capital letter, lowercase letter, like but balancing the budget sort of idea. Uh, that that well, you know, it's all going to be fine. Look, we went through what people called the Great Recession, and it just kind of looked like life. And then we went through, you know, th- this gigantic stock market crash. But I don't own stocks, so I don't care. Uh, uh, there was there was just. I feel like we are we are kind of cocooned to to economic
1: hardship. I I'll, I'll add to that that I think that the fiscal hawks, if not crying wolf, were crying wolf or we're 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 crying prematurely. And I'm more on the fiscal hawk side of this. Like kind of my I I'm not opposed to all government spending, but you need to you need to display a clear public need for the spending and explain to me how it's gonna work. And if if you can jump those two things and go, we really need this and we think the plan will work because of this then I'll go okay great you know so i am but but generally speaking though i am looking at the budget i'm looking at the math i'm on that fiscal prudent side of the spectrum um the fiscally prudent people or at least we flatter ourselves thinking such we we have been crying havoc about this for 15 20 years and and it hasn't come to fruition which i think is the other part of the problem here is that if you have people screaming there's going to be a Debt crisis and the economy is going to implode, and we're going to have you know a generation of stagnation and all of it. Like the inflation is going to be Weimar Republic level, and we've been saying this since like I don't know 2004, uh, and it's now 2020. Like I I understand how the general public looks and goes. Yeah, I think you're full of it. Like that hadn't happened, uh, and uh, the 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 deeper problem with all of that is. The, the debt people are right. I mean, when I was in Congress working for a Democrat, I, I contacted the Congressional Research Service, which is a nonpartisan, very good institution, in my opinion. It, it, it's the, the in-house think tank for Congress, and it's meant to be apolitical. And I I got the research on the national debt, and, and it's pretty clear. I mean, the, the, they, they were like, okay, everybody agrees that at some point, debt becomes unsustainable. And at some point, creditors don't think you can pay them back in a timely manner or at all. And they quit buying the debt. And at that point, everybody leaves and quits buying bonds. And then you have to pay for everything through taxes. You can't pay in deficits anymore. So that that will eventually happen on on the current course we're at. And that is something we should be concerned about. But it hasn't happened nearly as fast as any of the fiscally conservative people predicted. And the result is that that has now lost a lot of its teeth and a lot of the numinous darkness that was infused into it over the preceding 10 years.
0: So I guess then that's it. Like there does have to be some sort of gigantic cataclysmic, the last of us, but with uh, a debt zombies uh, ravaging of the countryside before somebody says, "Whoa, the crazy old man in the lighthouse was right. Yeah,
1: I kind of think so. I kind of suspect so. (laughs) Uh, Although, you know, like the weird thing is this is not something that's up in the air at the state level. Like like one of the one of the little tricks that you can you can see governors do Any, anybody who's a governor running for higher office will always brag about, you know, I was governor of California or Montana or whatever for two terms. And I balanced the budget every single term. And it's like, yeah, like because you can't run a deficit in a state like you don't yeah. like you can't print money. There aren't Iowa bucks. There's not like, you know, the, the 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 shilling of Montana. You've got to make it work. Right. So like anybody coming out of the state level, they're aware of that. Uh, like they've they've it's at some point if they're actually running the show and they're not just a gadfly in the state legislature, they're they're aware that there's a limited amount of resources available to them. Uh, and so it's not as if this is something that becomes invisible to everybody at every level of government. It, it, it's something that seems to happen at the the top level of government where. I think people get in and go, yeah, I know that's a problem, but like, but right now, though, I can get this thing. Isn't this thing that I need more important now than this thing that's going to happen maybe 20 years from now? Let's do this thing now. And and yeah, it'll probably take us hitting a wall. So.
0: Where is your personal outlook on where the economy is 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 going now? A full full disclosure to anybody who listens to the shows over the weekend: uh, uh, the big story I think uh, that's going to happen this week and and will kind of define the weeks going forward is the new jobs report. The last jobs report showed us actually increasing unemployment, which was something that reversed a trend since we started opening back up again. Uh, uh, there is a lot of uh, sturm and drang about inflation and specifically key inflationary markets that have been uh, rising steadily throughout all this. But if we are at a point of stagnant economy and now we really only half recovered from turning our economy off and turning it back on again to stave us from coronavirus, like, do you think that that plays Politically, in in this in this climate, if we kind of are are sort of uh, a, a little numb to uh, to 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 economic realities and politics, uh,
1: I I think that we are very much going to be shielded from economic reality uh, for at least the short term. Uh, so I, I I take a little bit of issue with the prognostication put forth that we're going to have a, a stagnating economy and inflation. I think we're going to have a great economy and inflation. So what I think is going to happen is now that we're opening up and all of the states are about to full full throttle open up if they have, haven't already sometime in July, I think you're going to see the economy come roaring back because there's going to be all this capital that people were sitting on that they couldn't spend that they're going to want to spend. They're going to want to travel, go to hotels. So the retail economy is going to surge. Uh, just in general, I think I think the economy is going to do very well next quarter, uh, and I think inflation is probably going to happen. So you're going to be in a weird situation where. The economy's doing great and the value of the dollar is declining. And, and that, that I think is kind of a difficult thing to navigate in because if, if just throwing out random nonsensical numbers here, if the economy grows by 8% and inflation is 5%, it kind of looks like you're doing great, yeah. but, but, but in reality, like you're, you're doing okay. You're do, like, I guess you got 3%, right? So I, I think that's probably what's going to happen. And my fear there would be that in a bull market, everybody thinks they're a genius. And, and uh, I, I think that, it, and when if the GDP is great and, and the economic growth is happening, we're going to assume everything's good. Um, I suspect that inflation is going to happen. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say I suspect the, the Fed sets a target rate of two percent per year. Like the inflation is built into our system. That is what the the yeah. Fed is attempting to do. So it's not as if inflation is a nonsensical boogeyman. It's just a question of whether or not it is actually going to hit that target rate. Um, I think the Fed is. Kind of uh, buying uh, because a lot of the key indicators you bring up, like if you look at commodities aggregately, the commodities have increased in price, which is to say inflation is good, yeah. right? And so I, I don't, I I see a disconnect between the the prices for the commodities and the alleged two percent inflation thing, which tells me they're trying not to spook us. Um, but but either way, that's in there, which means every year your your bank account declines by two percent. Uh, so long as they're hitting that target, if it's getting higher than that, it's going to do even more than that. So. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to be shielded from all of that and or I shouldn't say shielded, I think it's going to be obscured by virtue of of probably a good economy compared uh, uh combined with high inflation.
0: Yeah, I hope it's a good economy. I mean, just because I always want to root for the economy. I always yeah, it's want to it's, root it's, for it's like Nor- Norm
1: McDonald talks about like Norm McDonald's like the uh the Dow Jones was down 200 points today. I like it when it's up. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm also rooting for the economy. great. I,
0: I am. I am. I, I do. I do wonder though, because I, I wonder about that last jobs report where, where things were flat and, uh, uh employment was, uh, uh, you know, unemployment was up and it's like, you got to wonder if this is a great jobs report, then maybe it's like, all right, Hey, look, sometimes there's some hiccups in the machine when we're, Opening up on this staggered level, and some states are open and some aren't, and some people are still getting unemployment and some people aren't, and and now we're we're going to come roaring back as of as of now, like that was a brief respite, and now we're back on our super uh, our supercharged train. Uh, But if it's not, boy, is there going to be a lot of questions? Uh, And I I I do I do wonder kind of what that what that looks like because I think we're going to get if it is a weak jobs report we're going to get a lot more questions and they're going to be a lot louder and you might even see some voices that you didn't expect saying maybe we need to stop this federal unemployment benefit maybe we are paying people too much to stay home maybe that is actively hampering the 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 jobs market and regardless of whether or not you believe that we are all worthy of a a a a greater wage, which I think is is a, a philosophical argument we can have. If the jobs numbers aren't good, then those conversations are going to get a
1: lot more vociferous. Oh, good. I look forward to that. Because as you know, Justin, I, I am always in favor of just embracing whatever your most shrill emotion is that makes you feel self-righteous <laughs> and, and not paying attention to math or actually trying to solve stuff like an adult. And so that'll be really fun for old Heaton to have to come in and look at numbers and try and figure out how to actually help people based on reality (laughs) instead of getting laid in the quad with the other children. Yeah, that uh, that that'll be fun. the 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 other the other bit that I think um, I like this character.
0: I like <laughs> I like I like bitter bitter academic <sighs> uh, uh, just just rate fogging up the uh uh fogging up the window. It's, it's
1: all alway, it's always more fun to break windows and yell about injustice than it is to figure out how to make the parking lot more efficient. It's yeah. always more fun to do that. But somebody has to go in and go. You know, if we if we move these. If we move this over, we can actually get in eight more cars. No one wants to lay that guy. Everybody wants to lay the guy screaming about injustice, but the guy screaming injustice isn't gonna do anything. Anyway, uh the the uh the the, the thing that I, I think might also come out of this that's always a perennial part of the the economic political landscape is that who wh- there are large macro forces affecting the economy. To some extent, they were affected by the president. By a larger extent, they were affected by by Congress. But whenever yeah. there's a depression, it's the the president's fault. And whenever there is a upswing, it is the president's great, brilliant resolve. Uh, And you you look at like the the increase in the economy. So when Bill Clinton came in in 1992, there was an immediate uptick in the economy. Well, it, it took place like, I think, a week after he showed up. (laughs) <laughs> so it, it, it wasn't anything he did. It was it was that George H.W. Bush had had done very, you know, had, or or alternately Congress had yeah. set up uh, had set up a good thing for him and then the same thing happened with Obama when he came in. Like like he Obama came in during a um d- during the height of of the recession and and uh, uh it it changed and we could give him some credit for that but also like if it immediately spiked um d- ditto Trump like it, it's all this kind of animals uh animal spirit stuff. The 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 thing that um I think has long term effects for all of this is it means that whoever whoever happens to be in the White House when the economy tanks ends up besmirching their ideological model for wide swaths of people. So like, I was having conversations at the beginning of 2020 uh, before before uh, it it ended up being a a duel between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, where I, I, I was talking to. Uh, you know, smoky room capitalists, all, all the fiscally prudent gay men that I was talking about earlier yes, that I was, exactly. I was hanging, hanging out with. And they were like, you know, I think the economy's going to tank. We ought to vote for Bernie Sanders so that it really just screws over socialism for another generation. So that when, 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 it, when it does tank, it happens on a socialist's watch. And I was like man, you've got,
0: <laughs> that's some galaxy brain yeah, you, thinking. Yeah.
1: yeah. You, you better time that right, my friend. Cause yeah. then if you get it wrong, I I don't know. I, uh, it, it, <laughs> also, I'm not going to root for the economy to take.
0: Uh, no, no, no. Uh, all right. Last question, because you are a creative mind. If let's say we are hired me and you young and Heaton, the new, uh, a brand, uh, officers for this this now flagging idea of of fiscal hawks we're trying to rebrand them hawks are out right we can't say we can't call them hawks anymore like we we need something cool we need a cool new phrase that the kids can hashtag and make their you know uh, tiktok videos about so so the algorithm rewards it uh, what is the the 2021 way that you can rebrand you know, uh, uh, being able to pay for things that the government is spending money
1: on? Great question. I, so I don't think that you would, it would help you branding wise to pick something big, robust, uh, virile or masculine. That's the, 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 the idea of fiscal conservatism is at least it's um, it's
0: it's 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 Rush Limbaugh, right? Like it's just it's kind of like a a, a man with a wide midsection uh, uh, possibly <laughs> right. who has golfed within the last 48 hours. Right. And, and he's smoking a cigar. So, and he has so a receding you, you hairline. don't yeah. don't
1: don't double down on that. I would call no. them like fiscal soccer moms. I would, I would, I would do something that belies like, Oh, resp- so you
0: would do, you would do safety mom. So safety yeah. mom was, that was, that was the Bush I, way of saying, uh, I, they, they wanted to kill Al Qaeda. Women wanted to kill Al Qaeda was basically, moms.
1: yeah, I, I would, I would try and figure out a way to be like, Hey, like you're I, at least from where I'm coming from. My, my goal is not to like leave poor people out in the cold. My, my goal is to keep the system from imploding. I am yeah. co- This is I, in my mind. I am an empathetic person who is a responsible person. And so if you could come up with a branding that's empathetic but responsible, and I'm thinking soccer bomb, uh, then, then yeah. that would that would I I think how be what how I would go with it. So you would go like pay you know, kitchen table.
0: A, a, you know a balanced checkbook now because no one uses a checkbook anymore so like uh, I, I, I i think i'd have a commercial green, green, where- green text on your uh, uh on your bank account app mom like just this, you know, this just- is this is what i
1: would do the scene is the kitchen table yeah uh mom is sitting there she's got an old calculator you know one of those solar ones Yep. And some a little sheet. There's a there's two kids. There's a little daughter and a son. And the son says, "I really want to go to summer camp this year, and I want to I want to go uh, to um I, I want to go to the water park." And she goes, "Well, you know, we don't have enough money for both. They're both good. We don't have enough money for both. So we're we, let's do this. Let's do summer camp. I think you can enjoy that more." And he looks kind of glum. And then the daughter says, uh, "You know, like I I really want a pony." And I want to do all this. And she's like, well, we can do one of those things. We can't do all of those things. Then the dad comes in and he's drunk and he just starts throwing (laughs) cash everywhere going. doesn't matter. I'm the fun guy. And then she looks into the camera and goes, vote soccer, mom. Yes,
0: we're going to go out right on that. Andrew Heaton, the host of the political orphanage. Uh, Thank you as always, my friend. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you want to uh, say thank you to Andrew Heaton, you can do so by heading on over to px3guest.com. Remember, Twitter is a cesspool of garbage and hate, so if you get unsolicited compliments on there... You tend to remember them. We love it when the PX3 Faithful goes and gives unsolicited compliments to our friends, and you can do so, so easy. px3guest.com Our email is theyoungamerican at gmail.com Our Twitter is px3tweets. Our Twitch, which we are live on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, is at px3live.com And our newsletter is px3newsletter.com you can share this podcast at px3podcast.com and you can get all your politics, politics, politics merch, including our tank tops, our COVID shots equals body shots, tank tops at politicsmerch.com. If You want to support us with a one-time payment? You can do so. Paypal.me slash payjury. Our Venmo is justin-young-20 and our cash app is px3cash. Send me a physical check or any other gift that you would like in the mail to P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas 78715. Again, P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas 78715. And of course, you can always get our exclusive bonus content at Take Politics Seriously. Com. The $3 tier gets you our Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show where we find all of the most relevant clips from the Sunday talk shows and I mix them all up and divine the narratives that will define the next seven days of politics. Give yourself the gift of translating what everybody really wants to happen this week and that way you can judge whether or not they did a good job making it happen. You also get a bonus podcast on Thursday. That is our late edition. The latest that we actually cover stuff is that Thursday bonus podcast. So go ahead and get that as well. Meanwhile, the $10 tier is the only way that you get your name read at the end of the podcast. Like these fine folks in our Titanic $10 tier. Headphones, Neil, Dr. G, The Other Half of Whiskey, Wednesday, Idris, The Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley, Stephen, Kathy, Mag, Zombie, Doc, D, really? Methudela, Honeythuckle, The Gen, Middle Age, Mike, Com Junkie, Calamity, Zap, D, Laser, Lord Scale, De Quince, Anile III, and Gloria Young, for King of the New World Order, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, Chad, Snuffies, Off Route 44, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Charles, David, Olin, and Angela, DL, Just Another Pilot, Frozen Summers, Jay Pink, and Andrew. If you would like your name read on the show, you can do so at TakePoliticsSeriously.com Friday's show. Great show. We're going to give you the latest of what the negotiations are between Biden and the Senate Republicans on infrastructure. We've got the return of our attack ad series where we go way back. A 1968 ad attacking Spiro Agnew and the history I found around this made me unsolicited text Andrew Heaton. I just found a factoid that I was so uh, I was so enthralled by that I just I just had to text Andrew Heaton. And so I will give that to you on Friday. Also, we speak with JD Durkin, the brand new primetime cable news politics host. Our boy, he made good. He comes on the show on Friday. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more. Discuss politics, but this... This is the only show that dares discuss politics.